Well, it's no secret to many of you that the last few months have been challenging, challenging because of the coronavirus, challenging over the last two or three weeks because of upheaval and injustice in our own nation, injustice that seems to be compounding exponentially as some respond to injustices by injustice. It's hard to know how to speak into it. It's hard to know exactly what to do and what to say. It feels like wherever we go, there's ditches on the right, ditches on the left. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. We can sometimes, even in the midst of that, grow despairing. We can see the world closing in on us. We can think that the world around us is really kind of all that there is, and we can grow myopic, we can grow nearsighted, where all we see are those things that are really close up. And what you and I need is to have our vision fixed, to go from being nearsighted to becoming much more farsighted, of being able to see those things more clearly which are yet far off. And to be able to see them in such a way that they shape and influence the present. This is what Isaiah is doing as he's preaching to the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. He is calling them to repentance and to faithfulness. To recognize the ways that they themselves have fallen short of God's glory and yet how God will manifest His glory through their redemption. Perhaps not today, perhaps not tomorrow, but one day that they can have hope in God. And Isaiah's message to Judah then is the same message that you and I need to hear today. And on our passage this morning, we capture this one big idea. It is that we will praise God forever because He has saved us From every enemy through Christ. We will praise God forever because He has saved us from every enemy through Christ. That is right at the heart of Isaiah 25. Just to give you a little bit of context, catch you up on where we are, Isaiah in the first five chapters of the book is just going scorched earth on Judah. They are sinners, have rebelled. Everything looks good on the outside. They go to church, they do sacrifice, they sing, but they are an unjust and a bloodthirsty people, taking advantage of the poor, showing partiality, degrading the very glory of God when they were to be a light to the nations. And Isaiah has been sent by God to rebuke them and to call them back to repentance. And Isaiah's very own call is one that we see in Isaiah chapter 6, began with a vision of the glory of God, the holy, holy, holiness of God. And that would fuel his message moving forward as he gives promises in chapters 7 through 12, not only of coming judgment, but of of God's grace and mercy in saving them, redeeming them, and ultimately sending a Messiah of a branch that would be raised up in the line of David, Isaiah chapter 12. But the beginning in Isaiah 13 all the way to Isaiah 23, we see a series of oracles, oracles of doom, as God continually calls his people to trust in him and not on the nations around them for political alliances, thinking that perhaps somehow 
If they can find their way out of this mess politically, then they can save and preserve themselves. But all of that is just self-salvation. It is to fall into the very same traps of the proud nations around them. And God is calling them to not be like the world, but to trust in His revealed Word as Isaiah preaches it to them. But in 24, what we see is dawn is beginning to appear. God is glorifying Himself in judging the nations. And we see in verse 23 at the end of the chapter that the moon will be confounded, the sun will be ashamed. That's all imagery of the end of the ages. Because the Lord of hosts reigns. All this chaos all around Judah, wars and fires, killing and death, political instability, and Isaiah's message is the Lord of hosts reigns. He is on Mount Zion and he reigns in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. That the glory of God will not be diminished in this day as in any other day. He reigns every bit as much today as he reigns in every other day. And his purposes and his plans are coming to fruition just as he's purposed. Trust in the Lord. And so we see, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 25, that he's going to praise God for being faithful to his plan. And then we're going to see in verses 2 through 5 or 2 through 12, three aspects of this plan to which God is being faithful. So in verse 1, he's going to praise God for being faithful to his plan. Then in verses 2 through 5, he's going to praise God because of God's plan to subdue the ruthless. In verses 6 through 8, he's going to praise God because of God's plans to swallow up death. And then in verses 9 through 12, he's going to praise God because God plans to stomp his enemies. He's going to praise God for three aspects of his plan. To subdue the ruthless, to swallow up death, and to stomp his enemies. That is our roadmap through this text this morning. Let's consider that first point in verse 1, that we want to praise God for being faithful to his plan. If you're here and you're here with children, let me just say, first of all, I'm so glad that you're here. I know this is not always easy, and kiddos are squirmy. First of all, I say there are opportunities if you need to go to uh, the uh, fellowship hall. We're streaming down there. You can, you can let them run their wiggles out there. But if you want to stay in here and endure, and I encourage you to do so, I want you to trust a couple of things. I want you to trust, first of all, it's good for your children to be in here. And second of all, I want you to believe that the Spirit is able to use God's Word, which is living and active, even when you can't give God's Word your full and total attention. God doesn't need your full attention for His Word to work. His Word will work by His Spirit even as your attention is divided. He is the one that gives us ears to hear even when you can't make your ears hear. And so I'm proud of you for being here. I know it's hard work. I've got a four-year-old sitting right there. Well, it's not hard for me, but it's hard for my wife. I could stand up here. But I just want to encourage you. Does my heart well to see you here? to see you bouncing back and forth in the back as I preach longer and longer and longer. And I hope that you're edified by God's word. Verse one. 
We need to understand verse 1, following verse 23, the Lord reigns. He reigns on Mount Zion. And so Isaiah says, oh Lord, you are my God. You're not just my God in the way that my car is my car and your car is your car. You are my God in that you have come to personally possess me and you are the one and only God insofar as you possess me and I possess you. I possess all things in you because You have brought me into your covenant. Oh, Lord, you are my God. And as a result, I'm going to exalt you. In other words, I am going to praise your name. He's going to praise his name because God's name is always connected to God's saving acts. All the way throughout the Bible, when God does something, he reveals himself to his people through a particular name so that they might know him as he is and interpret his works as he wants them to understand them. And so he praises God for his name, specifically the name of Yahweh. I will praise you because you are the God of covenant. You are the God who has made promises to your people. You are the God from everlasting to everlasting who will be faithful to his plans. And that's exactly what he says. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. We see here, first of all, that he's done wonderful things. That when Isaiah speaks of the wonderful things that God has done, he's not speaking of God's work in creating, he's speaking of God's work in saving. But notice that God has performed these wonderful acts of salvation because he is ultimately faithful and sure. That's a superlative in, in Hebrew. It's really the same words kind of packed back to back. He is, it is faithful faithfulness. It is trustworthy trustworthiness. It can't be more trustworthy. He can't be more faithful. He is the very pinnacle of faithfulness. And he is faithful to his plans. In fact, that word plans, the Hebrew word translated plans, or perhaps in some of your word in some of your Bibles, counsels, is the same word that informs the title given to the Messiah in chapter 9. Remember what is he called? He is called Wonderful Counselor. And it's the same word. That God has been faithful to all of his counsels. He has performed wonderful acts of salvation because all of his plans have centered on the person and the work of the Messiah, of this wonderful counselor, the object of his counsels. He is at the center of all of God's plans. And these plans centered on Jesus Christ are plans that were made of old, which is really just another way of saying that they were made before the world and before history ever began. Brothers and sisters, God's saving acts have always been centered on Jesus Christ. Some people have suggested that God saves some one way in the Old Testament and he saves another way in the New Testament, but that is false. God has always saved in the exact same way and he has always saved through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, we see Christ concealed and in the New Testament, we see Christ revealed. But it's always the same plan. The mystery of God being revealed in Christ through his incarnation. What has been God doing through all the ages? That's what the apostles are asking. Answer, the veil has been lifted. We can now see what that plan was. And it was always centered on Jesus. It was always centered on the redemption of the world, of the reconciliation of all things through the cross. That's where all of history was moving. And that was rooted in God's plans from long ago. 
Oh, that's why the Apostle Paul says God saved us and he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Did you get that? In Christ Jesus before the ages began. Always the same plan of salvation, always in Christ Jesus from before the ages began. And he goes on to say, which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is the coming of Christ didn't start a new plan of salvation. The coming of Christ simply revealed what the plan had been all along. It's meant to make our light bulb go off and go, oh, that's what God's always been doing. Everything's been leading up to this point and everything in history is going to terminate in him. Now it all makes sense. The mystery of God has been revealed. It has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. And so the Father has always saved his people through his Son, concealed in the Old Testament, revealed in the New And what wonderful things will God do in Christ? Well, we're going to see through the rest of Isaiah 25 that he's going to do three things. He's going to subdue the ruthless. He's going to swallow up death. And he is going to stomp his enemies. Consider verses 2 through 5. This first thing that God has planned from old to do, that he will subdue the ruthless. You have made the city a heap, a fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more, and it will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you, and the cities of ruthless nations will fear you. We're going to see that God's going to do two things in these handful of verses. He is going to ruin the ruthless in verse 2, so that he can redeem the ruthless in verse 3. That ruthless city is the city of man, the city that is opposed to the city of God to Zion. The world that is hostile to the word of God and to the people of God. And in his mercy, God is going to strip everything away down to its studs. And as a result, we see in verse 3, even the, the strong are going to glorify him and the ruthless will fear him. Those that we thought would never be saved by God, those that we think could never be overcome by God, that seem to have all the power in the world and seem to be using it To stomp on others, God is going to take some of them and convert them for his glory. They will glorify him and they will fear or rather honor him. And so in his mercy, God is going to strip away everything. And as a result, the strong is going to glorify and the ruthless will fear him. But until God does that, God, until God redeems the ruthless, the ruthless will continue to ravage the church, which is why in verses 4 and 5, we read that, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy, a shelter from the storm, that God will make himself a stronghold and a shelter for his people until he finally subdues their enemies, either by conversion or by destruction. And I want you to notice that word at the beginning of verse 4. For you have been a stronghold. That word there, the beginning of verse 4, for is qualifying the previous verse. 
You've got strong peoples glorifying God. You've got cities of ruthless nations honoring God, fearing God. How do they come to do that? They beheld the people of God and said they have a stronghold and they have a shelter. Why will they be converted? Because they've seen God in all of his sovereign grace in preserving and protecting his people. He will be a stronghold and he will be a shelter. And he will be so until he finally subdues the enemies of his people, either by conversion or by destruction. But even then, even then, the plan of God is not yet fulfilled. Because even when every earthly enemy has been subdued, one last enemy still remains. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that in the end, Christ will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. See verses 2 and 3. But the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And the defeat of that last enemy is what we see in verses 6 through 8. Look at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and of aged wine well refined. That first phrase there, the beginning of verse 6, on this mountain, that mountain is speaking of the Mount of Zion all the way back in the previous chapter, verse 23. It's where the Lord reigns with his people. That on this mountain, the Lord has prepared a feast. But I also want you to glance through verses 6 and 7 and 8. And I want you to notice the repetition of the word all. So interesting. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a a feast of rich food. And he swallowed up on this mountain, verse 7, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. And the Lord, down in verse 8, will wipe away tears from all faces, and he will take away the reproach of his people from all the earth. You see that? It is a totality of salvation for his people, and it's meant to be understood on the backdrop of Isaiah chapter 2. So just for context, keep your hand here in Isaiah 25 and go back a few chapters to Isaiah chapter 2. Because we've already seen a glimpse of what Isaiah is preaching about in Isaiah 25. That's in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. It says this, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord, we just saw that, or the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of all mountains and shall be lifted above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. Of course, as we talked about before, it's this image of a river of people flowing upwards. Rivers don't flow upwards. Rivers flow downwards. The only way that rivers flow upwards is through a miracle performed by the almighty creator God, and that's exactly what he's done in calling all nations to himself and to his mountain, that many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Go back to Isaiah 25. And so he says, on this mountain, what mountain? The mountain we just read about in Isaiah 2. The mountain that will stand above every other mountain. That is the mountain of the house of the Lord. Mount Zion, where all of his people are being gathered by his grace from every nation. And he is making a feast for them. 
of rich food and of well-aged wine full of marrow and oh, Mike's mouth is watering. Do you know Mike used to be a chef? His mouth's water. And notice, there's no teetotaling in heaven either. We've got well-aged wine, food full of marrow. It's to our very sustenance. Of course, all of this is just the imagery of what it looks like to feast on the word of God forever, to be sustained by him. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was tempted by the devil? Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Remember what he said in Isaiah 2? Let us go up because the law sounds forth from Zion. Let us learn and be taught by God. Isaiah is saying the same thing here. Let's feast on God. You realize that when we come together as a church on Sundays, and we sing God's word and pray from God's word and we hear God's word preached, we are doing in part what we will be doing in full forever. That is feasting on the word of God as he continues to teach and instruct and to bless us. And so the nations we notice here in verse 6 are gathering not to offer sacrifices and they're not to serve, but to feast. They're gathering to enjoy God They're gathering to enjoy what God has provided. Not to bring what they provide, but to enjoy what God in His grace has provided. And in verse 7, we see here that God will swallow up death forever. How is it that we will ultimately come to feast in the house of Zion? He's going to swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. That language of a covering and a veil is speaking of a death shroud. This death shroud is now removed by God and death itself is swallowed up forever. But notice also this covering, this death shroud, it's cast over all peoples. This veil is spread over all nations. The Apostle Paul later in Romans 5 makes sense of what of what Isaiah is saying here, that through one man sin, so now sin spread to all men, and therefore death has spread to all men because all men have sinned. In other words, when Adam jumped off sides, we all got penalized. He was our representative. The curse of sin was death, and that death is now covering like a death shroud over all of the earth. And what we see here is even though this curse is as far as one end of the earth to the other, his redemption is found as far as the curse is found. That this death shroud would be removed and death would be defeated. I think chapter or verse 7 gives us new layers of meaning and appreciation for little details that seem seemingly seemingly unimportant when we get to the Gospels. Turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. So often there's so many little details in in the Gospels, we just kind of blow by them, not really pay much attention to them, perhaps even thinking that they're not of much importance. But I want you to keep this in mind, this covering that is cast over all peoples, a veil that is spread over all nations, this death shroud that is covering all things, 
now being removed and death being swallowed up forever, beginning in verse 1, John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that is John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of his tomb and we don't know where he's laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they're going toward the tomb. Both of them are running together, but the other disciple, that is John, he's so humble, out ran Peter. He got to the tomb first, looks around, Peter, what took you so long? And verse five, stooping in to look, he saw the linen cloths lying there. He looked in and what did he see? All he saw was death shrouds removed, but no death. Well, and then Peter finally shows up, huffing and puffing. Verse six, following him, he goes into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. All you mamas talking to your kiddos, look, even Jesus took care of his stuff when he woke up. Even he folded his clothes and made his bed. But look at the repetition. Why is John so consumed with repeating this seemingly meaningless detail of cloths and linens and death shrouds being, is laying there and being folded and removed but no death? Because God, what God has done in Christ, He will do for all who are in Christ. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. If you're in John 20, I want you to go a little bit more to your right to 1 Corinthians 15, just driving home this point of what God did in Christ in removing these death shrouds, finding death no more. He will do for all who are in Christ because Christ is essentially the first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15. Beginning in verse 21. For as by a man came death, that is to all people, death shroud over all nations, so by a man has come also resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power for he must, re he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Skip down just a little bit more. Verse 54. And in that day when the imperishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, <laughs> where's your victory? Jesus is talking trash. Where's your sting? What you got? You ain't got nothing. 
It's all been swallowed up. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory not only over our enemies, but the victory over the final enemy, that is death, and it will be swallowed up by Jesus. It already has been. The shroud has been removed. No more death remains in the tomb. And what God did in Christ, he will do for all of those who are in Christ by faith. Go back to Isaiah 25. Not only will death be swallowed up forever, but even in the defeat of death, God is going to do two more things. Look at verse 8. First of all, God will wipe away tears from all faces. Does that sound familiar? It's Revelation 21. John is just quoting Isaiah. And notice who it is that does the wiping. It is the Lord God, the sovereign God. He is the one who wipes our tears. The image is that of God, the sovereign God, the almighty God, moving from person to person, wiping each one of their faces one at a time. What Isaiah is communicating through this image is that the sovereign God who defeats his enemies is also the personal God who comforts his people. Better yet, he is the comfort of his people. But not only will God wipe away our tears, secondly, he will take away our reproach and the reproach of his people, he says in verse 8, he will take away from all the earth. Alex Motyer, the leading Isaiahic scholar, says this, as long as life in this world endures, there are innumerable ways in which the people of God are under reproach and hindered. By circumstances and sin, from living according to their true dignity, all this will be taken away. He continues, the new nature will be given full and glorious expression in an environment where everything is conducive to holiness. Covenant promises will become covenant reality in that day. No more death, no more despair, no more derision, only a feast of rich food and well-aged wine as we behold our God and Redeemer face to face. He has swallowed up death, which is why in verse 9, it will be said on that day, behold, look, check it out. That's what it's saying. And by the way, It will be said is in the singular. All of the praise in verse 1 through verse 5 is all plural. These are a bunch of individual voices singing this song. But now all of these voices have become one voice. And how true is that of us? Each one of us has seen God work in unique and particular ways in our lives, in his own providence, bringing people into our lives and circumstances into our lives so that we might have ears to hear the gospel and come by his grace to repent and believe in Christ. Oh, he's so merciful. But in all of those individual stories, and we see this in our membership interviews, in all of our individual and particular stories, there is one story, one song, 
one lyric, and it's this. This is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. Oh, this is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. They're all saying to one another, behold, look, this is our God. Did you ever think he would be like this? Did you ever think he would be that glorious? Did you ever think he'd be that holy? Did you ever think he'd be that beautiful? That's him. Face to face, Coram Deo. This is our God. We have trusted in him and we have waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited for him. And he's here. He said he was going to do it and he did it. What did he do? Was we've seen already in this passage, specifically in verse 7, that he's rescued us from the curse of sin. He's rescued us from the hardships of the world. He has made us his people. He has restored us to his favor. And he has brought us under his rule and his care forever. That's our God. Whoa. It's going to be like that in crescendoing fashion for all of eternity. You will never get bored of God. His glory will only continue to grow exponentially as you are no longer hindered from sin, as you're no longer hindered from trials, as you're no longer hindered from, from derision or anything else. It will be the glory of God growing in exponential fashion, coursing through every aspect of your being and every molecule and full experience of the glory of God holding him face to face forever. That is our God. That is what we have waited for and waited for and waited for and waiting for. That's what he's promised. That's what he did. That is Isaiah 25. It's the gospel. God's always saved in the same way. His promises have always been the same. His people have always endured and waited and longed for the exact same thing. And that's exactly what we see here. It's why we just sung the song earlier that we are bound for the promised land. No more disease, no more death. None of it gets across the shore to the other side. Only we do because of Jesus. And so we praise him in verse 9, but not only that, we also rejoice because while God's hand is on Zion, in verses 10 through 12, his foot is on the throat of his enemies. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab will be trampled down in his place like straw in a dunghill. Even as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim, the Lord will lay low his pompous pride. He's going to drown in his pride. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. The enduring image at the end of chapter 25 is one of Christ as a conquering and victorious king who has saved his people with his mighty hand and is standing over his enemies. They are his footstool, his foot on their throat in utter humiliation for all of the ways that they have rejected his word and abused his people. This is the hope of the church. That being said, how do we apply this passage to our lives? I'm just going to give you a few. There's so many. The first and most obvious one is that we praise God because of his plan. 
that even when we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is why the doctrine of election gets a bad rap, but it is one of the most glorious doctrines in all of the Bible, as we see in Romans chapter 9, that his plans, even his electing plans before the foundation of the world, is the only way that salvation could be completely and totally unmerited, free grace. It's because it's before you and I have ever done anything good that we can be rewarded for or anything bad that we could be punished for. It is based purely and solely in his good pleasure toward his people whom he has loved from before the foundations of the world. Pure, unmerited, unbreakable, unfailing grace. And so we praise him for that. So often when we look at our circumstances in our own lives, we forget that we are indestructible in Christ. Though perhaps not in this life, we can still get diseases and so on and so forth, but that while yet we may die, we live in Christ. The death shroud has been removed. And what God has done in Christ, he will do for all of us. So we don't fear coronavirus. We want to be wise, we want to love our neighbor, but we don't fear coronavirus. We don't fear the burning of cities. Not because we can't be killed, but because we can't die. Though we die in this life, yet we will live because Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And we have believed in him. So we praise God because of his plan and we grow confident that that plan cannot be derailed. And so even when it seems like the whole world around us is spinning out of control, we can be confident that there is not a single molecule in all of the universe that has flitted outside of the sovereign control of our God and is not moving toward his appointed ends for his glory and for the good of his people. We praise God for his plan. But secondly, we want to pray to God according to his plan. Because while we look forward to this future, we recognize that this future is being preached by Isaiah in a very real and a very hard present. And we want to pray at least a couple of things. We want to pray for God to shelter, according to verse 4, his church from the ruthless. The Nigerian Civil Society Organization has reported the killing of no fewer than 620 defenseless Christians in the wanton burning and destruction of their centers of worship and learning in the last four months. Some have been beaten, others have been shot, others have been beheaded. Christian churches have been ransacked and then burned to the ground. This is the reality for so many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Yet one Christian pastor there in Nigeria named Lawan Andimi, he was abducted by members of Boko Haram gave the following message in a hostage video before being released or before being beheaded. He just said three things. Don't cry. Don't worry. Thank God for everything. And he lost his head. Why can a man say such a thing at such a time as that? 
Because the one and Demi knows Isaiah 25 is true. Though he may die, he lives. Secondly, we want to not only pray for God to shelter his church from the ruthless, but we want to pray for God to save the ruthless before he destroys them. This morning I woke up to an image of a street preacher who had come into the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, Chaz, up in Seattle. Seattle, right? He's a street preacher and he's preaching the gospel. He's got his microphone and everything else and he was accosted by Antifa. They wrestled him to the ground at one point. They were choking him out in a rather sad bit of irony based on what they're protesting. He was laying on the ground and even while he was laying there and holding on to both his his Bible and his microphone, he was saying, I am a free citizen, I'm a free citizen, I'm a free citizen. And it wasn't because he was appealing to his citizenship in the United States, it was because he was free in Christ. On the way in, a masked Antifa member, dark sunglasses, hoodie, bandana, you know what I'm talking about, you've been watching the news. got up into his face as he was preaching the gospel and kept saying and taunting him over and over as others were taunting him from the left side and the right side. What are you doing here, bro? You want to die, bro? You want to die? Is that why you're here? You want to die, bro? Over and over and over. And he kept saying over and over and over, sin is worse than death. And he's right. There there is something, the reason that we preach the gospel, the reason that crazy evangelists would walk into the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone where he knew he would be derided and rejected if not possibly even killed is because he knows that there is something better than human flourishing and there is something worse than death. And so we want to pray that God would save the ruthless before he destroys them. Yet how will God save the ruthless? He's already shared how he's going to do that. The means by which he will do that will be through the preaching of the gospel of faithful men and women who will go into the heart of ruthless cities and preach the gospel even at the expense of their own safety or their own life. And we look at guys like that sometimes on the news and we think, why would he do that? He's crazy. In our own maybe kind of secure and safe suburbanite Christianity that I'm guilty of falling into as well. And we go, why would he do that? Doesn't he know that that kind of evangelism doesn't work anymore? Doesn't he know? Why why don't you just go in there and just start making friends? Except I fear that most of our friendship evangelism ultimately leads to lots of friends and not a whole lot of evangelism. The reason he goes in and does that is because God has appointed the means whereby he will save the ruthless before he judges the ruthless, and that will be through the proclamation of the gospel, for faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But how will they believe if they don't hear? How will they hear if nobody's sent? So it is written, beautiful are the feet 
of those who preach the good news. Even if it leads to being beaten, shot, beheaded, wrestled to the ground, derided and ridiculed, threatened, or any other number of things. So when you go with out on the square to hang out on Saturday nights, maybe you're on a date night, maybe you're hanging out with some friends, and you see one of our members, Joe Henson, on the square preaching. Do you stay on the other side of the square? Is there something in you that goes, I don't really know that I want to be associated with that. I don't really know if that's the best method. Or do you see your brother standing up, people deriding, people poking fun, people arguing? And do you think, those are beautiful feet. Those are really, really beautiful feet. That is how God is going to save the ruthless. Not just by street preaching, by all kinds of evangelism, but it will be because God's people step into the heart of the ruthless and speak the gospel even at their own risk. And they do so because Isaiah 25 is true. That for all who believe in me, Jesus said, though they die, yet will they live. Death is swallowed up forever.